Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to the Legal One podcast. Today's episode is part of a 12-part series highlighting major U.S. and New Jersey Supreme Court decisions, why they are relevant today, and how the law has evolved since that decision. Today, we are discussing the legal discrimination claim standard in light of a major 1973 U.S. Supreme Court decision, McDonnell Douglas Court versus Green. McDonnell Douglas is the seminal U.S. Supreme Court case addressing the analysis of a discrimination claim. Matters regarding discrimination issues, regardless of the state from which it emanates, contains a discussion of McDonnell Douglas. Today I have with me special guest Kathy Lindenbaum, 2019 to 2021 NJPTA president. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you for having me. So getting into the facts of the case, back in 1964, Percy Green, who was a civil rights activist, was a black man who was a mechanic and laboratory technician that was laid off by McDonnell Douglas, which was an aerospace company in St. Louis during a reduction in force at the company. Mr. Green, who was also a civil rights activist, claimed that the general hiring practices were racially motivated. Mr. Green and others protested his dismissal from the company. And as an example, things were done such as using cars to block the roads to factories. There was an allegation that a door was locked so that employees couldn't leave and things along those lines. The company then advertised for qualified personnel when they were rehiring. Mr. Green reapplied for employment, but was rejected on the grounds that his prior conduct was deemed to be illegal. Mr. Green filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, also known as the EEOC, charging a violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The EEOC determined that there was reasonable cause to believe that Mr. Green's rejection for reemployment violated Section 704A of the Civil Rights Act. This particular section forbids discrimination against applicants or employees for attempting to protest or attempt to correct allegedly discriminatory employment practices. Following failed reconciliation efforts by the EEOC, Mr. Green sued the company in federal court. The ultimate holding of the case was that in a private non-class action complaint under Title VII charging racial employment discrimination, the complainant has the burden of establishing a prima facie case. In today's podcast, we will be analyzing what is a prima facie case in a discrimination claim. You should understand that every discrimination case is different and that they are all fact sensitive. If you change one or two facts, you can change the entire outcome of the case. So it's very important to understand that today is just a general overview of the law. There is a lot to discrimination law and it's hard to put it all in in just a 30 minute podcast. So understand that this podcast does not constitute legal advice. There are many nuances to different individual cases, 
and you should seek the representation of a private attorney in the event that you feel that you have a discrimination matter. I would point out that Mr. Green first went to the EEOC before he went to federal court to file his claim. This is common. This is what happens in these types of cases where you would try to exhaust your administrative remedies before directly going to court. So going through a school district, there is an option to go through the chain of command and talk to the teacher or others there. And you can also talk to the affirmative action officer at the school. Many people don't realize that school districts have an affirmative action officer and that this particular person is supposed to advocate for anyone that feels that they've been discriminated against, which includes students. Then there are also various administrative law forms. And I won't go into great detail during the podcast. If you look at the PowerPoint that is attached to the materials, I've listed the regional offices under the New Jersey Department of Law and Public Safety, also known as the Division on Civil Rights. There's also the Office for Civil Rights under the U.S. Department of Education, and then going to the U.S. court system. So there are other remedies prior to going to actual court where you can try to resolve an issue. And the thought is, is that they want these schools, in this case, to fix whatever the problem is. And you need to make sure that the entity knows that there is a problem or knows that something has gone wrong so that they're on notice, to use the legal phrase, before you can try to sue them for something they did or did not do. So now let's turn to how a person would establish a prima facie case for a discrimination claim. The first part of it is the plaintiff's burden, the person who's brought the lawsuit. They have to show a number of things. The first of which is that they are a member of a protected class. If you go to the PowerPoint that's with the materials for this podcast, you will find on slide nine, there is a listing of protected classes. The top half of that list contains the federally protected classes. These are the classes that apply in all 50 states. And they are the ones that most people know off the top of their heads, race, color, creed, sex, religion, those types of things. You will notice there's also a section under NJLAD. NJLAD means the New Jersey Law Against Discrimination. So it's the state version of the discrimination law. And New Jersey has enacted other classes to be added to this list for the state of New Jersey. So under New Jersey law, LGBTQ status is also a protected class and hair under something called the Crown Act is a protected class. Hair passed recently. This was the result of an unfortunate incident that happened a couple of years ago where a young man was in a wrestling tournament and the referee wanted him or made him cut off his dreadlocks before he could participate. By the end of that year, the Crown Act, C-R-O-W-N Act, was passed, which said that race is inclusive of traits historically associated with race, including but not limited to hair texture, hair type, and protective hairstyles. And then the law further defines protective hairstyles as including but not limited to hairstyles such as braids, locks, and twists. So those things are protected class. In order to file a claim for discrimination, you have to have something that's on this list of a protected class status to qualify for a claim. Next, you have to show that you're qualified for the position. So in the case of hiring, if they're looking for someone that has 10 years of experience in a particular degree, if you applied for the job and you don't have any experience and you don't have a degree, you would not have been qualified for the position. That would be a defense for the employer to say they didn't belong here. For a student's perspective, let's say they wanted to make a sports team and they're going to claim that they didn't make the sports team because they were discriminated against. But when they tried out for the team, they weren't athletically talented enough to make the team. The argument would be from the other side that they weren't cut because of whatever protected class they have. The argument would be they were cut because they weren't athletically talented enough to make the team. Next, they have to show that they suffered an adverse action. So to take the legalese out of that one is something bad happened to them because of their protected class status. 
The easy ones are they someone got fired or they got demoted or they didn't get a raise. But it could be something in the case of a student, they weren't allowed to participate in something. There have been a number of cases recently saying that there has been discrimination about students not getting into gifted and talented programs or that a certain student didn't make a sports team or wasn't allowed to participate in something because of their protected class status. Then they have to show that the circumstances surrounding the adverse action give rise to an inference of discrimination. Well, that's certainly a mouthful. So what does it mean in everyday English? It means that they have to show that it looks kind of bad <laughs> to make it very simple. So as an example, a male employee is not allowed to do something when a woman in the same or similar position can. Something along those lines. It just has a kind of a weird, yeah, that might be discrimination. It's not proof that discrimination occurred, but it gives the inference that maybe there's something there that we should investigate. So if a plaintiff is able to show those four things, protected class status, qualifications for the position, suffering an adverse action, and circumstances giving rise to an inference of discrimination, the burden then shifts to the defendant to prove that there was a real reason for doing what they did. What it is is the employer or the district, in the case for our analysis, would have to be able to articulate some legitimate non-discriminatory reason for doing whatever they did. So in the case of an employee, if they're claiming that they were discriminated against because of their protected class status, the employer would say, no, we didn't pick on you because of your race or religion or ethnicity. We picked on you because you're a lousy employee. And they should have evidence to back it up of bad reviews and things that were done wrong, things that weren't done properly, things along those lines. Or going to a student analysis, take the student that wanted to play in a sports team. The argument will be, you weren't cut from the team because of your protected class status. You were cut from the team because you don't have the ability to make the team. You don't have the athletic requirements necessary to be able to make the team. You can't throw the ball or hit the ball or do whatever was required. If it was a track or swim meet, you did not make the cut times to make the team. Things along those lines. So legitimate, real reasons to not allow someone on the team. Then if the defendant, in this case would be the district, is able to show that we have legitimate reasons for doing what we did. Then the burden goes back to the plaintiff and it gets a little bit harder. And here the plaintiff has to show that the defendant's proffered reasons are lies, that they're pretextual, that no, you really did fire me because of my protected class status. The stuff that you said about bad reviews, you made that up or you slanted it or something along those lines. And here it has to be more than because I think so or doesn't seem right. You actually have to have evidence of showing this is why I think this is pretextual. This is why I think it really doesn't happen that way. So I'll give you an example of a case that I had where I represented the school district. And in that particular case, there was a woman in her 60s that had worked for the school district for quite a long time. And she was very comfortable in her position. Well, this particular year, a new administrator was brought in to fix things in the school. There was a lot of financial issues in the school and they wanted to try to clean it up and get the school functioning at a better fiscal level. This new administrator was a man in his 40s. Well, when this particular administrator did his review of the school, he determined that this particular woman's department was the worst department in the whole school. And he wrote memos to her saying, here are all the problems I found. Please let me know what you think about this. We need to work together to fix this and on and on and on. This went on for quite a while. At the end of the first year of this new administrator working there, this female employee, for the first time in her almost 25 years of working for the district, did not get a raise. They go into the next year, they still have the same problems with their working relationship. The administrator is finding fault with the way that the staff member is doing her job. 
the staff member is not happy with this new administrator. We get to the end of the second year and ultimately she doesn't get a raise again and ultimately ends up no longer having her position with the school district. So then she files a discrimination claim against the school district. So let's analyze that case. Going to the plaintiff's first burden, is she a member of a protected class? Well, the answer is yes, she's a woman, so gender is a protected class, and she's in her 60s, so she has age as a protected class. Was she qualified for the position? Well, in this case, because she had already had the job for over 20 years, it would be considered that she was qualified for the position. Whether she did it well or not, that's another issue, but she was qualified since she had held the position. Did she suffer an adverse action? Well, she didn't get a raise two times in a year, she was asked to respond to memos that other staff members weren't responsive to. She ultimately ended up not working for the school district anymore. So all of those things could be considered an adverse action. And then do the circumstances give rise to an inference of discrimination? Well, you have a male younger supervisor that ultimately, once he was brought in, this older female employee felt she was being picked on. So that gives the inference. It's not proof that actual discrimination occurred, but it's saying there's something to look into a little bit more. So then it flips to the district to defend why they gave her the bad reviews and ultimately she was no longer working for the district. And the district was able to produce all these reviews with laundry lists of things that she had done wrong, memos trying to correct it, memos requesting meetings which she wouldn't come to, and various other things where they were putting forth that has nothing to do with the fact that you're a woman or that you're over 60. It has to do with the fact that you're a lousy employee and you're not doing your job. So once the school district articulated these arguments, then it went back to the plaintiff to try to refute them. And I will tell you in this particular case, she wasn't able to and the whole lawsuit ended up getting thrown out of court on what's called the summary judgment motion. But that is an example of the back and forth that happens in a discrimination case. That's the analysis that goes into it. One other thing you need to know about is something called the law against retaliation. You are entitled to put forth claims that you feel are legitimate as long as you're doing them in what's called good faith. You truly believe there's something wrong. Now you could ultimately end up being wrong, but you have to have a good faith, a true belief that there's something wrong. So if you put forth a claim that you feel you're being discriminated against or your child feels they're being discriminated against, and ultimately it turns out you were wrong, it still is possible to have a retaliation claim. What this is, is that it's under the law, you can make one of these claims in good faith, and then the district cannot retaliate against you for making a legal claim that you're entitled to make. So if you say, I feel I'm being discriminated against, and then you notice from that point on, so it's after or contemporaneous with you saying, I feel I'm being discriminated against, if the district or anyone in the position of power starts being even meaner to you or doing more things to you or does other things to you, it can be argued that they did it because you exerted your legal right to make a claim. That is a separate claim. And it is possible you can lose the underlying discrimination claim, but still win a retaliation claim. An example, I'll use teachers as an example. If a teacher were to say, I feel I'm being discriminated against, and they were ultimately let go, and the district stopped giving them references once the teacher asserts a claim of I'm being discriminated against. They stop giving them references. They say bad things about them, things along those lines. Well, the teacher ultimately ends up in court with a case. They lose the claim of discrimination. The school district is able to show we have legitimate reasons for letting you go. But the teacher can still show, well, once I accused you of being discriminatory, then you did all this other rotten stuff to me. You stopped giving me reviews. You stopped giving me references. You stopped being nice. 
the teacher could prevail on a claim then for retaliation. So it's something else to keep in mind and it's something to watch for. Once you assert your claim that you truly believe something has been done wrong in a discriminatory manner or any other legal manner, an OSHA violation or something like that, you have the right to assert those claims. So if the district or the employer, if you're an employee, starts being extra mean to you, this is an extra claim that may be brought about. So it's something to be aware of and possibly something to discuss if unfortunately you're in a position where you might need to go to legal counsel and discuss these types of claims. So with that overview of how a discrimination claim actually works in the court system, if you actually bring a claim, file a lawsuit, bring a claim and go to court, that is the analysis you'll go through and that's what you'll have to be able to prove in order to survive and be allowed to stay in court. With that, I'm gonna bring Kathy into the discussion and I'm gonna ask you from the parent's perspective, if a parent or student feels that a student has been discriminated against by the school district or a district employee, what should they do? Well, first I wanna say if a student comes to you as a parent and says that there feels like you know, something's going on, that they're being discriminated against, first the parent should definitely have a talk with their child to find out exactly what's happening so that they understand the situation. And like was said in previous slides, you know, the chain of commands is important. Obviously the student and or the parent together should talk to the teacher to find out if the teacher can help, if it's the teacher that they're saying that they're being discriminated against, have that conversation and ask some questions. If it's someone else, then definitely start with the teacher. If you don't feel like anything is happening with that, then go through the chain of commands. The next step would be the principal, speak with the principal. If the parent then still feels that things aren't going the way they feel that they should be going, then the next step would be to the superintendent of schools. And then, or, or there could be an assistant superintendent that takes care of issues like that. The principal could lead them into that and go through the chain of commands. And at that point, in the end, if they feel that the superintendent is not meeting their needs, then that would be time to seek an attorney. I would also say, don't forget the affirmative action officer for the district is also a potential remedy of helping to work with these claims. If there is an allegation of discrimination, they're gonna be brought into the claim. So they may be able to help and look into what's going on and help resolve the issue, whatever it may be. So a lot of people don't realize that the affirmative action officer also applies to the students. It's not just someone, that person is not just there for the staff, they're also there for the benefit of the students. That's a good point. Thank you for that information. That's important for parents to know. So we'll turn to behavior outside of the district. So if a parent or student feels that a district staff member has posted online or said something inappropriate outside of school that may be perceived as discriminatory, what should the parent do about that? Well, again, it would be great if they could go to the school, the person, the teacher in the classroom or a school counselor. I would suggest going to the school counselor and asking the affirmative action officer. But in the end, they, they still might have to seek an attorney for that. If the district needs to know what's going on as well. You might be the best window to see who's saying what, you know, whether it's at, particularly if the employees live in the town, you know, maybe something happens at the town softball game or something like that. You might be in a better position of having information than the district would be. A lot of times the social media is a big problem that we have too in PTA with parents and leaders that things are posted that are, you know, borderline inappropriate. And we always tell people that, you know, try to get it, resolved before they take legal action. It's always better to get it resolved. And I mentioned that you have to go through the administrative remedies. They want to work it out. They don't want, particularly in this case with the district, they wouldn't want a school district to maintain discriminatory practices. So they want the district to change whatever it is that they're doing wrong. And so if the district doesn't know that something is going on, they can't fix it theoretically. 
So that is part of what going through the administrative processes does. It gives you a chance to take care of it at the district level so that they can fix the problem and not have this problem for your student or any other students as they go forward. Additionally, when you get into the higher courts, this is just from a strategic standpoint, something to, to consider, is that if you have exhausted your administrative remedies, you tried to play nice, you tried to work up the chain of command and go through the system, and none of it worked, all your requests were ignored, no one did anything about it, that strengthens your claim for discrimination later on. Because then the district or any entity that you're involved with, quite frankly, can't deny notice of a problem. So they can't say, well, I didn't know there was a problem, so there's nothing I could do about it. They are on notice if you can prove that, look, we contacted the teacher, then we went to the principal, then we went to the superintendent, then we brought it you know, to a board meeting or something along those lines. If you haven't followed that process and then gone through the EEOC and all of those places and it can't be resolved there, that strengthens your claim if and when you finally do get into court. So it's something to keep in mind as you're working through this process. If a parent or student feels that something in the district's curriculum is inappropriate for discriminatory reasons, what should they do from the parent's perspective? Well, in curriculum, we have another issue here. So you have to look at, there are a lot of things that are mandated by the New Jersey Department of Education in curriculum. So first, the curriculum issue would, I would start with the principal in that case, let your teacher know that you're going to be going to the principal as a courtesy, go to the principal, talk to the principal about the curriculum issue. But in reality, the curriculum is given to the school board to vote on by the superintendent of schools or whoever is in charge of curriculum in a, usually an assistant superintendent or a director in a school district. And then the board votes on the curriculum that's given to them. So that really would be an administrative decision. And that you could obviously, as a parent, bring your thoughts and concerns to the administration in the district and then to a school board member. But that's where the curriculum comes from. It doesn't come from the teacher. That's true. And sometimes the, the, the fight, so to speak, is about how a particular topic is taught rather than whether the topic is, is covered. Um, in New Jersey, it's state law that LGBTQ status must be covered in the curriculum that they have to learn about. It was actually in the same bill that included in the curriculum, like you have famous women in history and famous this in history and famous that in history. You also have to talk about famous LGBTQ and disabled people in history. They're actually in the same bill. So that's something that has to be covered. How you cover it may be something for a discussion, but the fact that it's going to be covered, that's state law. So it's something to keep in mind. Another common claim that's happened in this realm is our religious issues. There was a recent case I have read about where in a Western civilization class, a parent thought there was too much emphasis on the Muslim faith when they were discussing a particular country. And ultimately she filed suit against the district. But what the court said was there's a difference between teaching about the religion and teaching the religion. And then the court went on to articulate about how to understand different parts of the world, this is part of their culture, their religion is part of their culture. So in order to understand the country and the culture, you have to know what the religion is. That's different than trying to indoctrinate someone into a religion. So if you have issues with what you see in the homework coming home or something along those lines, that is definitely, as Kathy said, something to bring up and have a discussion about, a calm, rational discussion about, I don't understand why you're covering this, or are you covering everything else equally? Something along those lines. Kathy, any thoughts in that regard? Well, just communication on everything we've talked about today and in previous podcasts. Communication is key. If we talk about things and we bring issues up, sometimes just understanding why they're being done or voicing your opinion of why you don't like what's being done and coming to a compromise is a good thing. That's how we learn, by communication. 
So I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you would like more information, you're welcome to go to the Legal One website. That can be found at www.njpsa.org backslash L-E-G-A-L-O-N-E-N-J. That's Legal One New Jersey. You can also find additional information at www.njpta.org. Kathy, any final thoughts before we say goodbye to the audience? No, just thank you for having and including parents in your this very important discussion. Wonderful. It's great talking with you, and I look forward to talking with you the next time we have one of these podcasts. So take care, be well, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.